Hi and welcome to another episode of Understory, Western Australia's only environmental radio show. I'm Tom Wilson. Today we hear from a couple of the crew on board the Sea Shepherd ship currently docked in Fremantle. We get our regular segment on climate scepticism and we also hear from environmental philosopher and sculptor of wood Peter Adams on a course he recently taught at Schumacher College in England. First to the Stevo and a big black ship that's currently in Fremantle. It's en route to some to some direct action protest against the Japanese whaling fleet in the Antarctic waters south of Australia. I recently wandered around this ship and chatted with a couple of the crew about life on board the Stevo. And um, yeah, my name's Kevin McGinty. Uh, I was on the last campaign as a deckhand. I'm an electrician by trade, but um, yeah, it's basically on board to assist with launching the boats and the general tasks around the boat. So uh, are you going down to Antarctica this summer? Uh, yeah, we're heading off uh, at the end of November over to Hobart and then down to hopefully rendezvous with the fleet as early as possible. And what's it like when you actually engage with the Japanese whaling fleet? It's pretty exciting on deck? Um, yeah, it's certainly adrenaline rush. It's uh, crazy time you know you you're chasing these guys when when you first meet them it's um wow it's overwhelming you know you, to see them coming across the horizon and the nishimaru is just so huge it's a massive massive ship is, is this the ship that you, you find every summer uh, the nishimaru is the factory slaughter ship that the whalers use and um yeah if we can get on the tail of that you know, we try and stick on them to prevent them transferring the whales across. Right. And, and it's a huge ship, you were saying, compared to the, the Steve Irwin that we're on right now? Absolutely, yeah. It's 130 metres long and uh, it's a massive vessel. So it's a David and Goliath situation, you know. Mm. And uh, just personally, what, what motivated you to become involved with the Sea Shepherd Society? Uh, I've been donating to Sea Shepherd for probably four or five years now. And uh, I like the fact that they're a direct action operation. It's, the funding goes direct to what you see. They get involved at the, the pointy end, so to speak, and it's uh, a situation that governments should be taken care of in, in the first place, and unfortunately an NGO like Sea Shepherd has to intervene on the world's behalf. And how's life on board when you're on, out down in the Southern Oceans for weeks or months at a time? How long are you down there for? Uh, we, I think the campaign is three months. So we're off the beginning of December. It's basically the time that the Japanese head down and hunt the whales. The whales migrate down to feed off the krill along the ice shelf. And um, they're easy targets for harpoon vessels and the like. So... Do you ever feel claustrophobic on a small... Well, I guess it's not that small a ship, the Steve Irwin, but do you ever feel claustrophobic on board? I uh, don't feel claustrophobic on board. You know, If you ever feel as though you need space, you walk out on deck and you're looking at several thousand square kilometres of open ocean. Mm. Anyone who gets claustrophobic in that is in a heap of trouble. OK, well, thanks very much for talking to Understory. Absolute pleasure. My name is Chris Altman, and I'm the helicopter pilot for Sea Shepherd. Okay, and uh, you guys are taking this big ship, the ship, uh, the Steve Irwin, down to Antarctica in a few weeks' time. When are you leaving? Uh, scheduled departure is December 2nd. 
And I imagine your job on the ship is one of the more exciting jobs, uh, taking off in the middle of rough seas. Is that the kind of thing you do? Uh, yep, I have one of the best jobs in the world. Um, my job is basically to uh, make the Japanese whaling fleet famous. Um, we go up and uh, document their illegal activities and make sure that the world keeps seeing what they're doing down there. So, uh, for example, so you, you've obviously done this a few times before. How many years have you been involved, or months have you been involved in the Sea Shepherd Society? Th- this will be my sixth year, my sixth Antarctica campaign. Well, and that, that more or less covers most of the history of Sea Shepherd in Antarctica. Yeah, it's, I've done every campaign but the first one in 2002 that Sea Shepherd did. Okay, and uh, did you have, before you got involved, did you have a history of uh, working in conservation as a helicopter pilot? Uh, no, actually, uh, I just met someone at a scuba show in Los Angeles in 2005 um, as a, a new commercial pilot. I was looking for work abroad, and and uh, someone met, met um, one of our now board members, Kurt Lieber. He was tabling for Sea Shepherd at the scuba show. I asked him, it was very ironic, my first question to him was, does this group ever need helicopter pilots? It was the first thing I ever said to anyone from Sea Shepherd, because I'd never heard of them at the time. Uh, but I asked him if they'd ever needed, sea, uh, if Sea Shepherd had ever needed helicopter pilots. He said no, because they didn't have a helicopter at the time. But we became friends. And about seven months later, Sea Shepherd did start thinking about getting a helicopter. And I got involved with helping them figure out what they needed and then I looked for one, and then I found one, and then I bought it, and then I flew it, and the rest is history. Wow. So what, it, what is it like uh, taking off uh, on the little helipad behind us? We're in the bridge right now of the Steve Irwin, but the, the helipad's at the back of the ship. What's it like taking off from the helipad, uh, from the helideck, on uh, rough seas, you know, south of 40 degrees? Well, um, there's just a, really one rule you never want to... Um, there's one rule you always want to abide by, and that's never take off in weather that you wouldn't want to land in. So uh, if it's too rough, uh, you know, if it's too rough to take off in, if you're feeling, uh, if I'm feeling like it's uh, not too rough to take off in, it's certainly something I don't want to land in. Um, so the weather... Hang on, I thought it was always rough down there. No, it varies. I mean, I've seen days when it's been like a lake, not a ripple on the water, absolute glass. Um, you know, obviously all the way to, you know, 20-meter waves. So um, typically when I fly, uh, you know, there's a, a narrow range of bad weather that, that we can operate in, um, which, you know, is more than you'd think, but the ship can be moving around quite a bit. Um, but the problem is down there, when the weather starts going bad, it has a tendency to go all the way bad. So it, it, very, rather, it very rarely gets gets kind of bad and then goes back to good so it's that trend you need to be aware of because if you take off and it's it's okay and then you go and fly for three hours and you come back and it literally might be unlandable um so you have to really watch it and and you have to monitor it in the air um i've aborted flights mid-flight because the weather got so bad uh that i was worried we wouldn't be able to land um when we got back and safely gotten back every time but there's definitely been some some uh hairy landings Okay, well, thanks very much for talking to Understory. If you're interested in hearing more about, learning more about the Sea Shepherd Society, Captain Paul Watson, uh, the head of the Sea Shepherd Society, will be speaking tonight in Fremantle at the Fremantle Town Hall. That's tonight, Wednesday, the 3rd of November. Many of the crew from the Steve Irwin will be there, and there'll be entertainment from Lightning Jack. Doors are 6.30. 
for a 7.30 start, and it's $20 admission. And if you miss this, then remember you can take a tour of the ship yourself this weekend for free, and I really recommend a wander around the most pirate-style-looking ship Frio seems to have ever hosted. Climate scientists are telling us that the Earth is warming, we are causing it, and we should reduce carbon dioxide to lessen the effects. So what should we do? Firstly, we should either use less energy or use renewable energy sources, like solar thermal generators that are now producing energy in Europe more cheaply than nuclear generators and without the waste products. In Australia, peak energy demand is on hot summer days when solar energy is most abundant. It makes no sense not to use solar energy to help meet this peak demand. The most important thing we should do is stop listening to disinformation. Contrary arguments have been repeatedly shown to be false and misleading. Claims that climate change is a hoax or a conspiracy, or that climate scientists have deceived the public, is an inversion of the truth. Climate change denial is the propaganda. 97% of scientists agree climate change is happening. The peer review evidence is overwhelming. The time for scepticism about climate change has passed. Scepticism, of course, is a good thing. All scientists are sceptics. I always encourage people to critically examine the evidence and motivations. A good place to begin is the following. What is more plausible? That thousands of scientists have been fabricating evidence and theory for over a hundred years in a conspiracy to achieve, well, what exactly? Or, alternatively, that industries and their partners are sponsoring a disinformation campaign because they stand to lose billions of dollars in profits if people should use less or alternative forms of energy. Ask yourself who stands to lose the most if the scientists' warnings are acted on. Then ask yourself who stands to lose the most if scientists' warnings are not acted on. And keep in mind that the cost of prevention now is less than the cost of trying to fix the damage later. Thanks very much to Kevin Judd from UWA. Finally today, a conversation I recently had with Peter Adams. Peter is a sculptor of wood based in the wilderness in southeast Tasmania. Originally American, he recently taught a course on the difference between the arts and the sciences and the sciences in the well-lived life at Schumacher College in southwest England. The references in the interview to Esalen, to the Esalen Institute in California, a place both Peter and I have spent some time. And uh, I started the interview with a very obvious question. Gray skies and cold. Gray skies and cold, everyone. Yeah, it's been squally. Whereas yesterday, and even this morning, was sunny and lovely. Right. Well, uh, uh, not that it's not lovely now. It's just a little more uh, adventurous to go out <laughs> into it. <laughs> That's a good description. Um, yeah. yeah, so over here it's basically really hot. Yeah. Summer has well and truly kicked off. Yeah. Okay, good for you. It's been ages since uh, we met. I was thinking it was back in 2004, uh, maybe, four or five. Well, that or, long ago. Wow. Uh, a few years now. Well, yeah. I know. I, I can't. I, I. The more I look back at my life, the more I realized uh, uh, I've burned a lot of candles. <laughs> How long have you been down at Wingrove now? Yeah, 
1992. 92, So that's wow. uh, 18 years now. We'll be actually 19 come, uh, uh, you know, February, or something like that. Wow. But the first eight years, I lived in the, a bus here while I worked on the land and created uh, a bit of artwork. Yeah. Trying yeah. to do an apprenticeship, in a sense, to uh, find out what the land was trying to tell me and learn to listen to it, you know. So those were yeah, you very You could probably hear it pretty well through the bus windows. <laughs> What's this? You could probably hear it pretty well through the bus windows when you sleep. Oh, God, there were, there were wild days, for sure. <laughs> and the first four years, I only had candles. Right. And so every night, when it, especially in the winter time, when it was you know dark at five, you, you just had I would have nine candles burning on my little desk for reading, yeah, and writing. That and did the job. Was, and no phone. There was no phone. And definitely no Skype. <laughs> yeah, and that's I, I just look back at that time. It's not that long ago, you know, nineteen ninety-two to ninety-six, and then. 96 to 2000 those were the times in the bus and then with and without phone and then I had some solar panels in 96 so I started getting a little electricity and mm. and running water because <laughs> I was oh, actually I was actually water. showing a friend of mine uh, a photo of uh, your sitting room your I yeah guess, the other day that I took when I was at your place and she's an architect she loved it and uh, funnily enough uh I think I told her you only spent uh, two or three years making the house, but I'm, I was obviously very mistaken. Eight years, uh, you built the whole house yourself? Well, no, no. The eight years, during that time, I did have the little deck, or, or picnic site, I guess, covered deck. Okay. From 96 to, to uh, uh, 2000, but I li- lived in the bus. Hmm. Then I built the first outbuildings as well. But then in 2000... Starting then, I started building the house with my neighbors. The first half. So then, 2001, I moved into the house. Half of the house was finished, and then in 2002, we did the second half. So it's it's built in stages. You know, I think it's like, I guess I went through a lot of drafts. And it's just like writing a novel. You know, the whole thing is slowly, a piece by piece, and. Uh, in yesterday's blog, I wrote about patience, and mm. I think that's been one of the learnings here. Yeah, uh, so your blog, I, I think I did even say that. The, the, yesterday's blog was uh, two or three wooden sculptures that you'd made years yeah, ago left yeah, under a tree. Yeah, I, I stuck up the, with those, the Rilke poem, on, or not poem, but quote on patience for an artist, what it requires. And in a way, it's it's what I've learned most here uh, is just how it's, things take time to really get into them. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, we'll jump now to uh, my teaching with Fritjof Capra with Leonardo da Vinci, and yeah. that's one of the things his life was about, was just this lifelong, slow pursuit of knowledge and wisdom and understanding the processes of the earth, you know, in order to paint them and and understand them. And so it's, it's especially in today's world, you know, we got to, we want to be enlightened 
and after one meditation, uh, you know, we want instant access to knowledge. Zen enlightenment in 60 seconds. <laughs> yeah, which you know what that's like at Esalen. You know, it's, that's, that is a part of the California uh, scene. I have the right equipment, in a sense, but, but there, is no, there is no fast way to, uh, to understanding things. It's just a slow accretion of knowledge, daily experiential knowledge. And that's another thing, being out here, was just being living on the land. And, and despite my baggage, my personal baggage, you know, I, I still knew I had to try to live as close to the land as I could to learn anything. You know, I, being from Detroit, the white man, uh, city boy, I, yeah, I've had to uh, overcome a lot of uh, pre-programmed, uh, wired-in uh, ways of being in the world. Yeah, well, uh, that's probably you've been well and truly reprogrammed after so much time spent communing with nature in southeast Tasmania. I imagine yeah. that uh, you're pretty different to how you were when you lived in the city many years ago. Well, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, there's no guarantee. But uh, I guess it's sort of like, you know, the, the bit, the little I've done in of Buddhist meditation, it's just like we can never erase our past. And uh, what's there will come up again and again. But we learn to live more lightly with it mm. and, and not attach ourselves to it. So I guess that's one thing that's happened here. Uh, so in, human. you were, um, just to go back to the course you taught in, yeah. was it uh, May of this year? Pardon? What was it May of this year you're in England? It was, was it? I think, mid-May, mid-May over okay. in England. In, in Schumacher College in yeah, south, yeah. southwest England. Uh, Which, as you know, is a, a kind of a residential school uh, uh, on the Dardington Estate. Class size is around 20. Uh, and we had nine different countries represented in our student population of 18. Uh, well, that's so nice that, to have some multiculturalism it, there. To me, that's the excellent way to learn. If you have a couple weeks to spare, mm. you know, it's, you're immersed in it. So we, we, we live there. We share meals together. Like I would get up at 7, go to a morning meditation just for a half hour, and then you go to breakfast. And we had uh, Fritschoff and I each gave an hour and a half lecture in the morning. Lunch, then in the afternoon, we split it where I would do experiential outdoor things with the students, uh, kind of in an artistic manner, but not trying to create, quote-unquote, art, just observe in the manner that Leonardo da Vinci would have observed. Mm. And then late in the afternoon, Fritschoff would meet with the students for private tutorials. And then we'd have dinner, and then in the evening we did other things together. So, you know, after three days of this, 24 hours a day, it's just like... you. You create a tribe of of people, a family, and it's just it's amazing what can be accomplished in that time, as far as reaching in and, and grabbing somebody's soul, in a sense, and uh, bringing it out. Yeah, so I, I I really like that aspect of it. 
Sounds mm-hmm. very different to a university education uh, in Australia. Um, oh, well, anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world, yeah. Yeah, because the way universities run now, you know, you go in for the hour lecture, wham, then you run out, and you never have time to, uh, well, generally, it, it's just rushed, and you're throwing a lot of info, and then you leave. And whereas in these residential places, I mean, even Esalen has it to an extent that they're shorter courses. You know, you're there soaking in the tubs, you're eating your good food, you're walking, you're in the a pretty powerful environment at Esalen. Very powerful, yeah. And then uh, you have these intense days with the teacher. So, and that was a course on Leonardo da Vinci, da Vinci that you it told It was me based around Leonardo da Vinci. It's not like we were purporting to be uh, scholars of Leonardo, no. where we would just discuss who he was. Although Fritjof ran through a lot of his scientific uh, achievements. And so the way we divided the class uh, time, Fritjof would talk about, let's say, the facts of Leonardo. And I would come in and talk about the more feeling, artistic half of Leonardo. So we we purposely split discussions up into the right and left half of the brain. Mm. And even though we both understood that, you know, Fritjof has a feeling heart and I have a brain, you know, an intellect, uh, we purposely dealt on the two sides where he was the factual half and I was the more feeling, you, the you, nonlinear half. Right. You have an and, image uh, on your blog of someone's cut-out bit of paper uh, and basically encircling a bit of field and wood. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's quite interesting. On the other side of the photo, the bit of cardboard is not obscuring the field and wood. And it... it it made me think a lot about reductionism and how science yep. operates to yep. take out complexity where art puts it yep. back in. Definitely. And that's what uh, Fritjof, you know, being a systems theorist to begin with, how he got interested in Leonardo, because he saw him doing reductive science, let's say, you know, his close observations of water, of air, of flight, of the human body, of geology, of plants. So he saw that, and he was observing them his whole lifetime. At the same time, unlike a lot of science in the last 200 years, he didn't just keep looking at things into, and putting them into smaller and smaller smaller categories. Mm-hmm. He, all the time he was observing these minute details, he was kind of holding the whole global picture together. Mm. And that's... I guess what uh, Fritjof and I are trying to get students and I guess the whole wider world to understand is the uh, reductionist methodology is good to a point, but it's not but half of the point. The other half is this more holistic view of the world that, that has to include, you know, feeling, intuition, uh, nonlinearity, uh, and looking at the broad picture, you know, the emergent qualities that come out of the, the sum of the parts, which, you know, is always greater than the, you know, the whole is always greater than the sum of the parts is what I'm trying to say. 
Oh, I mean, I think we need more people who can do that at the moment, more people who can synthesize. And I think your own blog at windgrove.com does that. I really enjoy reading it. Yeah. For that reason. Well, Um, that's my kind of, uh, my own, I can say, humble, feeble attempt to try to take what I've learned here, what I've learned as a student at Eslin and Spirit Rock and Schumacher, uh, to come up with a, a, a view of the world that that is uh, uh, well, just more harmonious. It, I mean, it sounds almost a cliche, you know, that we're all interconnected and we have to live together. But uh, and we, it, but we have to. It's just it's an imperative, and uh, and so we have to keep saying this, keep telling the same story over and over again with, in a sense, new art, new pictures, uh, new scientific discoveries. Mm. So, uh, and I think so, I like, another would be, would you say, um, I've noticed you've been reading David Abraham on your blog yeah. and talking about his new book. Um, what's it called? Being Animal? Or, uh, yeah, Becoming, Becoming Animal. Animal, David yeah. Abraham. And uh, I, I suppose I haven't actually read the book, but I have read The Spell of the Sensuous, his previous book. Yeah. And, and I suppose part of his message is that we need to start listening to the the sounds of the the trees and the animals yeah. as a, as a well, language outside our text and our screens worth listening to. And would this be yeah. part of the the whole vision of an interconnected cosmos that you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Wait. Quickly. Uh, uh, to go mm. back. Yeah. With the David, what you would said is beyond wanting or being told by David to listen to the to the wind and the birds. He's saying that we have to move, uh, say, beyond the listening to become uh, the that greater ear of the bird, or like, you know, when you're listening. It's just like, how do we take all of this kind of sensate things that are happening around us and, all, uh, you can say, shapeshift into that, like when when you uh, see a bird flying, okay, what he's asking is that you, while you're looking at that bird flying, your shoulders, your arms start moving as though you are flying as well. There's a there's a real subtle difference now from just observing and looking at the animal, hmm. whereas you also, when you see the animal move. Your body, like proprial perception, moves with the animal or senses it on that level. And that's where we start then speaking to all objects which are no longer inanimate but are animate. Everything is an animated uh, being on the world, whether it's a tree, a stone, a leaf, a jaguar, or a trout. And yeah. that's that's a really exciting leap of empathy to make, isn't it? Oh man! When you make that it? leap, it's a good feeling. Yeah, I I just think uh, so. In the new book, it's much easier to read than "Spell of the Sensuous." Become an animal. He kind of approaches it with stories of him being out walking and experiencing. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, little vignettes of his daily life. Which I like. I just uh, it's uh, so a, a good way of uh, 
presenting the material. Yeah, and I guess that picks up again on the way that the artist teaches, uh, which is using contextual examples rather than just giving you the guidebook. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and not anyone can do it, you know, like one painting or one story. It's just, it's just, uh, we need numerous examples. And then they slowly build up within us this, this wisdom. Or, as, again, as Abram would call it, uh, we develop a muscled mind. Isn't that nice? That's a great phrase. A muscled it. mind. You know, because we do need our intellect and our, our abilities to uh, uh, be in our brains, in a sense. But, but it becomes muscled, becomes that uh, bodily uh, awareness as we walk around. So, uh, so I am thankful for all these people doing all this great work in the world now. Yeah, like Tim Flannery's latest book here on Earth. It's, whew, you know, you read it and there's a lot of depressing statistics, but, uh, you know, he subtitled it "Argument for Hope." So we have the capabilities to uh, take our behavioral patterns and change them create a world that is uh, where everyone lives together and understands the interconnectedness of all. And we're aware of what happens when we mine. We're aware of what happens when we use pesticides. Uh, and we take appropriate steps. Hmm. So, so that's, it's all, so I'm, I'm, there's so many good things coming out, you know. It just, it, yeah. Yeah, and that's another reason I read your blog to <laughs> keep track of some of your readings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got a few well, tips now and again. Well, it's, oddly enough, you know, again, it's, it's uh, I can do the blog now because even though I live out in the wild, semi wild, it's not really, I have satellite technology. You know, the satellite, my router for the computer runs off the solar panels. Right. So it's, uh, you know, it's... I, so it's, Thoreau's uh, cabin has uh, gone high-tech. Yeah, but I, I, I can live with that. <laughs> Me too, I think, yeah. I can understand that. Yeah, so as I said, today, you know, I can walk outdoors, can and look at the wombats, feel the, the air against my face, and then come in and go to the computer. But at while... I'm looking at the computer. All I have to do is turn my head uh, less than 90 degrees, and I look out to four glass windows, you know, French doors, mm. to see the world out there, uh, the other world, I shall suppose. Well, it sounds so, like a, an enviable existence to, to me, at least. Well, it, it is. Uh, I mean, I feel really privileged to, to be able to be here and do this work. Uh, I, I do also like it when uh, uh, other people visit, other humans. <laughs> so I can, I can share the, the family jewels or the crown jewels here. So. Well, um, I hope to be able to visit sometime in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, well, it's, it's, you know, the beauty is if it's been since 2004 that you were here, I think it has. Uh, you know, the trees have really grown. Right, so, so well, uh, another meter maybe on the <laughs> on the Sheoaks, or not not quite yet. Another what? Another meter, you think, in height? Forests I, becoming a forest? 
will it become a forest? Has, has the forest that I saw, or that wasn't a fully-fledged forest, become a proper forest now? Well, I mean, forest, a real forest, you know, takes hundreds, if not thousands of years to get its complex biodiversity. Whereas this 100 acres I purchased, you know, was more or less uh, ravaged by grazing. And also, you know, I won't claim it'll ever be a force in the near future. But, you know, come back in 200 years, I, I think it'd be a lovely habitat. But even having said that, uh, trees I planted in 1992, hmm. you know, they're three, four meters tall, five meters tall now. And, and, and yearly, they just get bigger and denser and thicker, and there are now places where you can walk where and, and hide in little, you know, secret little places that were 15 years ago was barren paddock. So, well, I mean, it's not growing, going to grow as fast as, you know, a tropical, more wet, more humid, more warm uh, landscape because it is coastal and it's salt spray and it's mm, air, sure. semi-arid, so... But it's that, it is coming back. Well, it's yeah. an inspiring example. And on that note, unfortunately, we'll have to leave it. Thank you very much for talking with Understory, Peter Adams. You're welcome, Tom. Well. I hope uh, uh, I, I express myself uh, <laughs> no, that was clearly. Great. Thank you.